You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What's going on, everybody? Jared Sandler here welcoming you into another episode of the Justice Set Conversation. Hope everyone is doing well. For those of you who have had a rough day, rough few days, rough week, just a rough stretch of time. Here's to hoping for better days ahead. Well, we're releasing part two of my conversation with Brad Sham. Technically, this is episode 63. Part one was back when we released episode 48. So hopefully you have a chance to catch some of that as uh, Brad talked then about being the voice of America's team, getting the Cowboys job and working with Vern Lundquist. Here in part two, we talk about Brad working with Eric Nadell and some of his Rangers experiences, as well as being a part of some big moments like Emmett's rushing record and more. And then we also get into something that's been a big part of Brad's life here over the last several years, and that is the importance of spirituality. I really, really enjoyed this deep dive into Brad's uh, mind and, and uh, you know, hearing his thoughts and his perspective, and hopefully you will as well. I would appreciate if you would take this link, copy, and just share it with your friends, uh, family, anyone who you think might uh, find this interesting. You can also subscribe, click the like button, or just leave a comment. Any and all of that stuff uh, would be much appreciated. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to tune in. I want to thank our producer of the Justice Set Conversations, Zach Rowe. And without further ado, episode 63 with the legendary Brad Sham. All right, Brad. So you mentioned earlier, and we, we discussed your time uh, with the Rangers. And I, I said you've gotten to work with uh, a number of legends. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the coolest things, no matter what else happens the rest of my life, uh, that I will share with kids, grandkids, anyone who who wants to listen, is that I grew up uh, listening to Eric Nadell on the radio in my bed on you know weeknights, especially when I wasn't allowed to stay up late. I didn't have a TV, and uh, and now I I get a I I I don't even like saying the word share a booth with him because that that seems like there's some deal of uh, equality there, but. I get to work with him, and I've gotten to call games with him and uh, be in the same space. And this is a, a mentor of mine, a close friend, and, uh, and 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 you got a chance to work with him during that stretch. I'm, I'm curious, what was that experience like working with Eric, and what were some of the things that maybe you, you learned from him? Jared, I say to people now, I say it when Eric is sitting in the audience and when he's not. Uh, I am still learning from Eric Nadell. Eric Nadell is so good that I'm a better football announcer when I listen to him do a baseball game. Because the relationship between... The, you talked before about uh, being the voice of a team and there's not a, a television crew, and and that is true. But the relationship, I believe, between a baseball radio announcer or announcers and fans is unique in our industry because it's every day. And because of exactly what you said, because I did the same thing. I, I laid in bed and listened to games when I wasn't supposed to be listening and I didn't have a TV. And so that, that's why my heroes 
were the guys who I was listening to doing the Cubs and the White Sox and and Jack Brickhouse was my hero in Chicago because he did them all on television. But the but the, those are the guys that you identify with as a kid, and so you have that identification with Eric. So you that's your childhood triggered when you hear his voice. And then when you get to sit next to him, and I told you I'd been friends with him since the 70s when we both came to town, the early 70s. When you sit next to him and you look at the game that he's describing and have an opportunity to reflect on the things that he is able to, he does it by second nature now. He's not trying to teach you, and maybe it's just what he learned. But he has descriptive ways of painting the picture for you that are absolutely textbook. And he also is a thousand times better than I can ever hope to be at reining in his emotions, not suppressing them, reining them in. So when you're around him, especially when you do what you've done with him or what I had the opportunity, you know when he's excited, and you can tell that just listen to him. You know when he's excited, but when you, (laughs) for better or worse, when I'm disgusted by what's going on on the field, everybody knows it. I don't hide it very well. I'm a fan. Everybody knows when I'm disgusted. You don't know when Eric's disgusted. You know when he's disappointed. But you don't know when he's disgusted. And as you know, and I can just say to people listening, believe me, he gets disgusted. But you don't know it because he is so professionally good. He's so proficient that he is able to remove himself from that. And in a sport as emotional as football, I maybe can get away with it a little better. In something that is as daily as baseball, that's that's every day, and uh, you can't be that high and low. You can't be that emotional. You, the baseball announcer on radio has to be a safe place for the fan to go. So that means someone who shares his or her point of view, pulling for the same team, but also not going to assault me with... Um, things that make me uncomfortable and also not going to lie to me, not going to sugarcoat anything, but not going to make me ill at ease. That's an art. That's really hard to do. And only people who have lasted as long as Eric are able to do it. And that's why he is a Ford Frick Award winner and in the baseball hall of fame it's been one of my life's greatest privileges to have shared that booth with him for three years all right now if i'm not mistaken the first spring training games you did were with replacement Replacement players players. we did two spring trainings 1995 okay what was that like what do you remember about that see i had been through that with the nfl so for eric it was surreal it was totally uncomfortable, I think. He, I think he would tell you that he hated every bit of it. For me, I had been through that. We had done that, what, 87? Was that the year of the replacement players in the NFL? 
Dale and I did a handful, almost half a season of replacement games. And I can tell you, and Dale Hansen will tell you, when they decided that we were they were going to have replacement players in the NFL, we looked at each other and said, "Okay, here's the deal. We can't. We don't have to like it, not like it. We don't. It doesn't matter. This is what's happening. The job we're hired to do is call the game, regardless who's playing it. That's what we're going to do. We're going to. We're not going to say Randy White would have made that play." We're not going to say these guys are horrible. We're not going to editorialize. Everybody knows what it is. We're not going to try to pretend that they are as good as the guys who are on stress. This, this is the game. We're going to call it. Because I had had that experience, I was able to take that approach. Uh, it was somewhat familiar ground with me for the spring training baseball games that we did. And and for Eric, it was totally foreign. He really, I think he really hated it. And you know, it wasn't the way I wanted my first first spring training to start. But hey, we had two spring trainings. <laughs> um, all right, now you you know we talked about big moments, and I want to get back to a Cowboys big moment. But before I do, since we're on the topic of the Rangers, uh, the the night the Rangers clinched in 1996. I mean, that the franchise had been in Arlington since 1972 and you know a lot of people I think more recently think about the Mavs as being the you know the the inept franchise of DFW during their run in the 90s but before that there was the Rangers and they finally finally broke through and made the playoffs you realize they never made the playoffs till I worked on their broadcast I, well I well I, I was going to ask you if you think that you know you're you were the missing link yeah uh, but, yeah. but what what <laughs> What was what was it like broadcasting for a team? I want to get to the night they clinched in '96, uh, but just in general, being a part of that with the excitement that I'm sure was attached to a team that had not made the playoffs, and the fans were finally getting to experience that. So '95 was the first year that uh, that I worked with Eric, and they were in the race right through August. And you know the 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 catchphrase then. Not, not among, not officially, but what people talked about was just you know meaningful games in September, because that had not not really happened very much since 1972, and they did that in '95. They fell short, but they were in it all the way, and then um, in '96 they they were a little better. They added some pieces, and they had a they had a really unique. I loved that team. I loved that team. Because I thought, uh, it, much like the eleven Mavericks, the the uh, whole was greater than the sum of the parts. Somewhere in my office, I've got a bat uh, autographed by um, Mickey Tuttleton and Will Clark and Mark McLemore and Rusty Greer and guy. You know, the, people. If you talk about the Rangers of that era, it's Pudge and Juan. And they were great, and I still, you know, I still love seeing Pudge whenever I run into him. Uh, but the, the Dave Valley, I mean, really gritty role-playing guy. Now, Will Clark had been a superstar, but he was he was on the downward ascent in his career, and it was a. I loved being on around that team because they were they were blue-collar, lunch-pail guys who uh, were were playing together, and that's a hard sport. It's a long, long, long season to navigate emotionally. So we'd had the taste of it in 95, 
and then in '96, you know, everybody was really hopeful, and they added these these pieces, and uh, so it looked like they really had an opportunity to do it. And it turned out they did. All right. So, what what do you remember about the night they clinched in 1996? Because that was not your uh, your traditional no, ho hum ball game. It, it was. They lost the game, but um, it was an extra inning game, and. Uh, the key was what Seattle was doing because they were neck and neck, and I think the magic number was one. And uh, I believe the Rangers were playing Oakland, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and Seattle was at home, and the Rangers went to extra innings. And so Eric Eric decided Eric set the the, the announcing inning rotation, and um, and he's changed it from time to time through the years. But so I don't remember exactly which innings were his and which innings were mine. But what I do know is that the, uh, I don't remember if it was the 10th or the 11th inning that they wound up clinching because Seattle lost. But what I do know is that on the rotation, it would have been my inning. And as we went into that inning, uh, I, I, I said, if this can't, this isn't right. You've been here from forever. The first time they make the playoffs, you have to be. I didn't say this on the air, but I don't think. Maybe I did, but but I didn't. But I said, hey, you. This is you got to do this. Just not right for somebody else. I mean, unless unless Holtzy comes over from the and by the Holtzy had passed by that time. So you know, unless Mark Holtz comes in and does it with you, then there's you've got to say it. So I, I gave it back to him. And he was able to say that Seattle had lost and, and the Rangers were in the playoffs for the first time. And I got to call the first, with him, the Rangers' first ever playoff game from old Yankee Stadium. Now, you want to talk about a thrill? Just being in that park under those circumstances, that's a thrill. And for a long time, that was the only uh, the only one one game uh in the playoffs, did they did they win at Yankee Stadium or in Arlington? The, they played. They played twice. I don't remember. They played twice in Yankee Stadium. But what did they play? Two. Was it a best of? Best five? of five. Yeah, they won the first one, and then they lost the the next nine over the the three years they made the playoffs. Yeah, the rest of that I, decade. I don't remember, but it all the first one. It all. I, I don't believe they won the first game, and it almost didn't matter. Because they were in the playoffs in Yankee Stadium. That's that's where Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth and DiMaggio and Gehrig and Barra, Whitey Ford played. Come on, who cares? <laughs> now, after once the game got going and they lost, then you cared. Yeah. But for the for the for the beginning of it, no. Come on. Well, okay, so you've called some. We talked about this big moments. Uh, those, those moments with the Rangers. Uh, you know, Super Bowls. Uh, the Emmett rushing record one to me is. A noteworthy, and, and, and this is just from the broadcaster and me, I, I don't know if the general fan would understand everything that goes into that, but what's tricky about a, a big moment is that you know that your call is is going to be a part of highlights and stuff, and, and you just, I, you don't want to mess it up, but, you know, in baseball, like a, a home run that, you know, in a big moment, you're not sure if it's a home run or not. You know, that's tough. If the, the outfielder jumps up and, you know, did he catch it? And, and, you know, they're not necessarily 
giving you a tell versus, uh, you know, a no doubter uh, when you know for sure it's a home run. I mean, there's a difference there. And with Emmett's rushing record, uh, you know, I, I imagine there was a challenge in just knowing, was that the run? Did he do it? Because you don't want to miss it, but you also don't want to overreact when he doesn't do it. What was that whole experience like? What do you remember about that? I hate the call for that very reason. Um, earlier, I believe it was that year. I believe it was earlier that year. Um, I had the opportunity working for Westwood One to do the um, Texas-Texas A&M game. And in that game, Ricky Williams, playing for Texas, broke what was then Tony Dorsett's NCAA career rushing record. And he did it with about a 40-yard touchdown. Now, that's how you break a record. Now, in Emmett's case, you know, we'd been on watch, and we, we knew, and I, Bob Thomas is my statistician and has been for almost the whole time I've been there, and, and he's the best. I mean, he's so good that people, the PR department refers to him. People hire him to do every sport available. And so we started from the very beginning of the season on a cut because I said, we can't screw this up. We can't say, oh, wait, we were three yards off. What do you know? He broke it two carries ago. We got to get, we got to nail this. So we were counting from every step of the first game of the year. And um, what I remember is that on the play that turned out to be the one that everyone hears, he needed about five or six yards. And it wasn't clean, but they weren't very good. And, uh, in fact, uh, I'll walk into my office, and on the wall of my office, one of the few signed things I own is my offensive spotting board from that game, which Emmett has signed for me. And the offensive line that he, first of all, Chad Hutchinson was the quarterback, and uh, Andre Girard, of course, multiple pro bowler, was a rookie. He was the center. Jeremy McKinney and Solomon Page were the guards. And Flozell Adams and Jamar Collins were the tackles. There's your offensive line. And um, obviously Girard was a multiple-time pro bowler, and Flozell was an outstanding player. But um, th- that was not the greatest offensive line in the history of the world. The team wasn't very good. But they were they were really trying to get him the record, and it was an inside play. At least he took it inside, and he bumped and kind of bounced off a couple of guys. And we were looking at every step, every inch, and his hand went to the ground. And that's why you'll hear me say that might do it, or that could do it, or something like that, because he didn't. They didn't open up a hole, and he went blowing through it like a freight train. He's playing bumper pool. Different body parts are almost on the ground and on the ground. His hand, but the, or his knees down, but he's not touched, and he's up, and and so he just barely got through. And um, people asked me from training camp that year what I was going to say. And for me, it does not work to script a call. So I had no idea. Only I did know I was going to somehow work Walter Payton into it because I knew how much respect. Emmett had for Walter Payton, and I did. 
And so that was a that's probably the as sexy a record as there is in pro football. And it I wanted to make I thought that Peyton deserved to be mentioned in it somehow. But I didn't know exactly what I was going to say because the moment has to come to you, and that's a great example because it was a horrible, unclean play. And it turned out to be just enough. And by the way, I think that put him a yard over. And on the next play, he lost three yards. <laughs> yeah, so he gave I remember it, he that. He gave it back. And then on his next carry, he went about 16 off the right side. And I remember saying, Emmett, that's what I was looking for two plays ago. <laughs> Are there other big moments that stand out to you? I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm sure it'd be easy for people listening to say, oh, of course, Jared, the Super Bowls. But what is there one in particular, one of the Super Bowls, or, or just a big individual play, a record, anything? Is there one that. That Are you talking about from you? a call standpoint, um, or just from? Because I guess I mean, the, the easy thing for me to say, and my the answer that I usually give is uh, Dallas, Washington, December nineteen seventy nine at Texas Stadium. I was still working with Vern, but he was doing a boxing tournament with Sugar Ray Leonard for ABC TV in Japan, and. Um, Charlie Waters had injured his knee in training camp, and so a couple of times Charlie uh, filled in, and that was one of the games. And it was um, a game with, it was the last game of the year, I think, tremendous um, ramifications. The winner was going to win the East. The loser depending on other results, and tiebreakers ran the risk of missing the playoffs, which is what happened to Washington. And there were at least eight Hall of Famers on the field, and it was a back-and-forth game. The Cowboys were injured. They didn't have some of their – I don't think they had Dorsett. They didn't have Drew Pearson. Um, Washington Washington could score. They, Riggins, John Riggins went 66 yards around the right end on a toss sweep. And for the Cowboys, a touchdown was a day at the dentist. It was all day seemed to make 50 or 60 yards. And and Washington was trailing. Uh, so, sorry, Washington was leading by six with the ball, uh, no timeouts, near their 20 at the two-minute warning. Near the two-minute warning. So it's third down and something. And all they've got to do is make a first down. Dallas, I'm sorry, I said Washington had no timeouts. Dallas had no timeouts. So all Washington's got to do is make a first down. Game's over. Six-point lead. And they ran the same toss play to to Riggins that he had run 66 yards for a touchdown. And Larry Cole, who had a tremendous double-digit year career but was is one of the slowest humans who's ever played, uh, but one of the smartest, saw the play coming ran right through everybody, got in the backfield, got to Riggins at the same time the ball did, threw him for a big loss. Washington punts, no timeouts, and Staubach with no Drew Pearson and no Dorsett, dinks and dunks down the field, Preston Pearson, Ron Springs, Tony Hill, dinks and dunks his way down the field, and with something like two seconds left, he throws a pass to Tony Hill that ties the game. The extra point wins the game. And you you can find um, 
recordings of that one and and my call to Tony Hill, which I've heard many times, uh, the touchdown pass to Hill, and it was a great it was a great series because I was all emotion. The Cowboys are coming back; they're, they're down by six. They're coming back. They're coming back. And at one point, and people had left, of course, because that's how Dallas Fort Worth fans are. And, and everybody was in the parking lot, but they were listening to us. And I said, "All you people." who left early, shame on you. And Charlie Waters said, shame on you, Brad. You, you broadcaster, you gave up. You've got you to gotta believe, he said. You've got to believe. You've got to love the Dallas Cowboys. Dink and dunk, they come back. And he throws, Staubach throws a fade to Tony Hill on the right side of the end zone. And I said, the stadium goes wild. Charlie Waters goes wild. Now they have to kick the extra point. Kick the extra point win the game, win the division, go into playoffs. At the time, I didn't know I was going to wind up doing 40-plus years of play-by-play. That was like the second game I'd done play-by-play of the Cowboys. And so it's one of the most exciting moments of my professional life. All right, Brad, the last thing I want to address, uh, you know, I mentioned falling asleep to Eric. Well, you know, because the Cowboys so often played during the day, I, you know, I wasn't falling asleep. But my first Brad Sham memories are carpooling home from Sunday school uh, because, uh, you know, as much as it would bug me at that age, uh, you know, I would miss a part of the Cowboys game. But, you know, I think subconsciously around that time, I, I also I looked forward to getting in the car. Uh, a, a guy named Mark was usually the the guy who was responsible for taking uh, our, our carpool home, and he was a Cowboys fan. And I would, you know, I, I'd get into arguments with the other people in the car because I'd tell them to be quiet because I wanted to listen to you. <laughs> and you know, I think it's kind of fitting because you know, you and I are both Jewish, and you have it. it it's certainly become public over the last few years as you've missed games, uh, you know, for holidays, but. You only have two, thank goodness. You, only two. <laughs> uh, and I guess I was just curious if you wouldn't mind sharing why that has why that has become such an important part of your life and, and, and what sort of an influence it has had on you as you've uh, you know progressed through life and, and you maybe have a better understanding of it now than 20, 30 years ago because I'll say, you know for me, growing up, going to Sunday school, going to Hebrew school, it was just, it was something that was a chore. And now that I'm older and I'm married and hope to one day have a family, it's something that I've embraced more. And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people on the religious side certainly, you know, have various connections and what maybe religion and, and spirituality brings them. And, and it's obviously something that's important for you. Uh, and I guess I, I just, I, I'd love to hear you kind of share the evolution of that and why it is so important. Um, we grew up kind of with the same approach. Uh, it was a chore for me, too. But um, life experiences, uh, if we're fortunate, um, will provide learning opportunities. And sometimes we stumble through things and don't learn anything from them. And uh, I had a number of things in my personal life that were not... Um, going well, and I felt that I was a major reason why they weren't going well. Uh, 
And um, I, I was at a point um, in about 2005 where uh, I, I'd hit a real low point uh, emotionally, and I literally said to myself, you got to change everything. I mean, this is not working. I mean, professionally, I was uh, seemingly doing fine, uh, but I but I was struggling and really kind of empty and and my real life was not going fine and um, I said to myself quietly I don't want to make it sound like I was talking to myself or hearing voices because that wasn't the case but I did say to myself you got to change everything what are you going to do differently. And the first thing I heard, and I heard it, was I didn't I didn't hear it as as much as I felt it, but it was in words. I know that sounds strange, but the answer to what are you going to do different is, well, you've kind of neglected your spiritual side, not religious, spiritual. So I said, okay, ha, huh, that's true, and so. Um, I made an appointment with my rabbi, who is one of the smartest uh, and most uh, inspirational and busiest people I've ever known, and he gave me an hour, and I did not understand what it meant then for that man to give me an hour. It was um, life-changing for me. And I remember the last thing he said to me was, well, I think God's most interested in results. And so I began step-by-step a journey of how to uh, realign myself with with the values that my parents had taught me, but that I hadn't learned, and... than I was living. And I didn't jump into the deep end. I just started one literal step at a time. And um, I know there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of practicing uh, Christians who will go to church on uh, Christmas Eve and Easter. And there are a lot of Jews who go to the synagogue on the high holidays. And that was me. I was a twice a year Jew, but did every, you know, I I mean, very culturally Jewish, did all of the holidays, all of the observances, but without real any intentionality, and it was just how how I was brought up. And um, I started to expose myself to different things. I started to go to the synagogue on Friday night. Let's just start with that by myself. Let's see how we're. Let's see what this is like. And um, the place I worship is Temple Emmanuel in Dallas. It's the it's the largest congregation in the Southwest. One of the largest. One of the five or six largest in the country. Uh, and so I walked into a Friday night service where I probably literally didn't know. I'd been a member there for years. But I probably didn't know half a dozen people in the room, and it didn't matter. I just, and I sat at the back, and I just felt warm, and I felt accepted, and I felt home. 
And everything I've done spiritually grew from that. So to me, when I asked the question, and I didn't intend to ask it of God, I actually was asking it of myself. What are you going to do different? Your life's a wreck. What are you going to do different? I was a horrible husband, an inadequate father. I was not the human being I wanted to be. What are you going to do different? Now, the answer came back to me in more or less my voice, but clearly it wasn't. And and again, I understand that everybody doesn't believe in God or acknowledge God, and some and there are different ways to uh, to acknowledge God. They're not all the same, but for me, that was very clearly God saying to me, I, I hear you, and and by the way, I have never left. You you got off the road, but I didn't leave you. I'm still right here, and if you are interested in getting back on the road, that's your work. I can't put you on the road, but it, if you want to be back on it, I'm I'm right here. And so, I have um, tried to deepen my spiritual understanding. Uh, in accordance with the faith with which I'm familiar and the practice with which I'm comfortable. And it's probably become the biggest, most important thing in my life because it's, it is my faith is my touchstone. It's, it's, it's what guides me, and sometimes I still stumble off the road. But at least I know where it is now, and I can get right back on it. And I have been asked, not often, but from time to time, how the faith journey has influenced my work. And I don't know that it specifically has, other than I think I'm a better human being than I was 15 years ago. And and hopefully uh, the values that I study come through in authenticity. They don't have anything to do with uh, nickel defenses and two tight end sets. But I really believe that, especially in radio, um, we, we have nothing if we are not authentic. You can't fool people uh, by by trying to be someone that you're not. They will accept you or they won't. Well, there you go. What a, a fascinating conversation with uh, a, a truly fascinating and interesting individual, someone who has accomplished so much, but hopefully you can hear it. someone who's always looking to, to learn more and, and better himself and Really loved my chance to to chat with Brad, someone who's definitely been uh, a mentor of sorts for me uh, throughout my journey here in this uh, in this world in this industry. A uh, shout out to our producer of the Justice Set Conversations, Zach Rowe. Uh, Z Rowe is the man. Hopefully, uh, you hear him on 105.3 The Fan. Uh, Want to thank everyone for tuning in. Hey, remember, would really appreciate if you would subscribe, like, comment, or just share it. Click the link and send it to a friend who you think might uh, be interested in hearing what Brad has to say. All that stuff really does go a long way. 
Well, that's going to be it for right now. We got more episodes coming. Until then, stay safe, be healthy. We'll talk to you soon.